Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. This podcast brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Phil Hayes here too. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. To celebrate the return of football, we're offering 40% off a subscription with The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up for less than £3 a month. And at The Athletic, we care about your club, so sign up now to enjoy unrivaled coverage from Phil and all the team inside of all the sides as the season reaches its belated conclusion. But reach a conclusion it will, Phil, because it's back on Sunday. Cardiff away. Are we ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. And I think the, the squad at, at Leeds are ready. It, it's kind of strange because you feel like you're going for the start of the season here, like you're heading into day one. And it is going to be odd. Nine games uh, in the space of 32 days to, to wrap it all up. Somebody, another club, championship club, not Leeds, describe it to me as, as like wacky races. And I think that's what it's going to going to be like you know, teams going all over the country quick fire matches and a hell of a lot riding on it in the championship I think that's the, the big difference between the two divisions is that an awful lot of things in the the Premier League are, are kind of sewn up but in the championship it really is every, it is everything to play for and, and everything that you can compete for is is there and, and still wide open Leeds have taken an interesting approach to this this return really because they've always anticipated that the season would start up again. I know opinion has been divided, not just in the championship, but through a lot of the, the EFL divisions about whether this should happen and, and whether it could happen. And there were clubs in the championship, notably Hull, who didn't want to restart, who wanted a, a points per game finish and, and wanted to wrap up after 37 games. But even though Leeds kind of did COVID planning early on, they, they also planned for how they were going to make sure that the squad would be in good shape if, if the games did start up again. And and every time I speak to them and, you know, everything we, we hear from Thorpe Arch sounds very, very optimistic. You know, they're happy with the 20th of June start date, even though some other clubs won't. Um, and they're very, very happy to play. And I don't think the stance on taking, you know, a play to the finish over PPG has really wavered at any stage. So what do we expect then from Sunday? How's it going to change in terms of Leeds getting down there and their preparation for the match? I mean, are you going down there, Phil? At this stage, I don't know. Um, we've applied for accreditation as we usually do, but it's we're at the mercy of Cardiff, really, and, and they are equally restricted. There are limitations on how many journalists and, and uh, media people they, they can let into the stadium. Uh, and the stadiums themselves will be tightly governed. Um, there are green areas, there are amber areas where the, the press would be, but then there are, there's a red zone as well, which is the pitch and the tunnel areas and the dressing rooms that will be very, very restricted and, and really limited purely to players and, and staff and, and match officials. Uh, so we'd, we'll have to have to wait and see um, at the moment. In terms of Leeds themselves, it's a tricky one for them because they have a 12 o'clock kickoff down in Cardiff, which is a big challenge considering that at the moment you have no hotels open and no hotels operating in the way that they normally would. I mean, Leeds have a pre-match routine, which is very, very fixed. They stay at the, the Double Tree Hilton in Leeds before home games on a Friday and or, or midweek and, and then come to come to the stadium. They For away games, they will always stay over in a hotel relatively close to the, the opposition's ground. There was a hotel that they were hopeful of using um, down in Cardiff, which I don't think has worked out. I, I believe there are other options, but from what I'm told, that there is, they are also considering the possibility of flying on the morning. It's it's not a long trip. Um, I think they could, they could find a plane which would allow them to social distance properly um, and to travel in a way that kind of abides with EFL protocols. But it is very, very different to what they would be used to. And I think that's the that's the bigger picture with all this. It, it is just football at the end of the day, and it is 11 v 11 on the pitch. But your preparation and, and what goes on round about and, and the way in which you're 
you're kind of unable to do so much of what you would have done before or your, your usual practices is a big change and, and will be unusual for the playoffs. And it has to be said that if you're travelling to Cardiff on the day, it does seem like a, a very, I'd say a very minor handicap. I don't think you should take too much, you know, make too much of it. But it is nevertheless a handicap in the sense that it's not what clubs would normally do. And I don't think there's a single side in the championship, barring those who don't have the money to, to stay over the, the evening before, who would want to be doing this. But it's a case of, of needs must. And I think at the moment they're still to decide. Michael, memories of 3-3 at Ellen Road against Cardiff. Do you think this game is going to resemble that one in any way, shape or form? It surely can't. It was such an odd game. At 3-0, I was thinking it was probably as well as we'd played under Bielsa. We, we were so dominant and it was getting to the point where it was almost laughable how much better we were than them. And then, I don't know, it just all fell apart. I, I would have been more confident in this, going into this game the first time around when they didn't have Tomlin because he seems to be one of those players who was always a bit of a thorn in our side. I'm hopeful that the fact there's no not going to be any fans in the stadium will take away that usual Cardiff element to it. And if it's based purely on the football, we've got to win, haven't we? I mean, there was a piece on The Athletic um, regarding away form and away form has been significantly improved in the Bundesliga, hasn't it, Phil? So maybe this will play into Leeds' hands a little bit. It really has. And I think if, if you, you know, you can find studies online about the difference that home crowds make and obviously everybody makes the assumption that a home crowd is significant and, and does make a difference but actually the evidence and the evidence backs it up results tend to back it up and you do find that generally speaking if you're playing at home you have a better chance of winning than than you do away um, all things being equal but you're right in the championship in um, the Bundesliga sorry it, in Germany it, it has been completely different and we did a bit of an analysis of that and, and found that before the lockdown the home win percentage had been 43% and, and since the lockdown it's been 20% and you are dealing with quite a small sample at the moment but even so that you know they're a fair way into the the return to play in Germany, and and there has been a, a noticeable difference. Again, home goals um, per game have dropped, um, away goals per game have increased, uh, which is a good sign for Leeds travelling away from home for the first game. But I think it does give you some indication of what it might do to Ellen Road, knocking the crowd out of the equation. What it might be like being there minus any significant noise from the stands. I, I spoke on the previous podcast about going down to Ellen Road just to have a look around and, and to get a, a feel for it. And you can't relate Ellen Road empty to Ellen Road full. It's like two completely different venues. And it's not much of a surprise to me, really, that the that the form has, has turned slightly in Germany and, and that there has been a, a nudge in that sense. But equally, your teams who have been at the top of the division for most of the season, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund and so on, have started back strongly and have done have done pretty well. Bayern Munich obviously wrapped up the title as they look likely to do. And, and you would think that over the period of nine games that form will still tell in the sense that the better sides will do better than the, the worst sides, given, you know, and, and granted that at this time of year, the results can become very strange. But yeah, I think um, I think the loss of home advantage could be could be quite significant for everybody. I mean, I know you are Leeds United's Jonah, Phil, but I am going to ask you anyway, what are you expecting this to look like on Sunday? How do you think it's going to play out? It's very difficult to say because you're talking about a three-month gap between the last game and this game. So it's easy to think of Leeds as the team who played Huddersfield off the park and, and who strolled through those five wins with the, the kind of ease that made you think that they were they really were kind of homing in on, on the title and automatic promotion. I think they're still very much in the same condition physically as they were then, but it, it is a long interlude. And, and likewise for Cardiff, it, it's hard to know if they will come back as exactly the same team as they went into the break. Will Harris have done anything different tactically? 
as Michael said, they do have Lee Tomlin back and they do have um, Nathaniel Mendes lying back as well, who are two two key players for them, two big players. And and it was really Tomlin who managed to spark that spark that fight back at Ellen Road. Almost, I don't know whether I'd say accidentally. I mean, the the back heel, the final assist for the third goal was was superb from him, but. It did seem to come from nowhere, and I, I thought it, it surprised Cardiff the fight back. I, I didn't think they were expecting it, and I'm not sure they really knew where, where it materialised from either. And you know, Neil Harris said that after the game, he said that we've been so poor and we've been so far second best that the only thing I can do is sit here and say that I'm absolutely delighted that we've got something out of this because it, it didn't look like it didn't look like there was there was any chance. I have it in my head that the Cardiff. Is a difficult venue for Leeds. It's one of the grounds where over the years I've always gone to expecting not very much. But because there's no crowd and because it's different and because the, the environment will be odd, I don't know whether that's in any way relevant. I don't know whether that's going to play a, a part. I don't know whether whether the fact that they normally struggle down or, or do often struggle down in Cardiff will will be significant and, and will be repeated. I, I suspect not. I just think in a lot of these games, it really is just 11 v 11 over 90 minutes. And I think a lot of them, until we get three or four games in and start to see some pattern of performance and form, I think a lot of them might be difficult to call. To echo that thought, I think, yeah, the, the conditions might be a leveller because particularly in this first game, it's going to be weird for both teams, isn't it? No one's going to quite know how it's going to feel, how it's going to unfold. So you would think then on balance and on the evidence of the season so far. And particularly because Bielsa's method is all about the process, repeating the process, repeating the process, that hopefully they'll kind of fall back on some sort of muscle memory and it's Leeds who click first. Do you think that's fair to uh, fair to assume? Well, Leeds are probably in as good a position for that to happen as anybody, given that the, the team and the squad has changed so little over the two years. There are a lot of players involved now who were involved right back at the start with Bielsa and you have... Players who are on long, long runs of continuous performances, um, consecutive appearances in the team, Jack Harrison, Matthias Cleek, when you start looking at Calvin Phillips and others, you know, very, very few breaks uh, in the games for them. They've been involved right the way through. So it is ingrained and Bielsa has drilled his tactics into them relentlessly. And, and this is why he does it, so that they can do it on instinct and, and they can do it at the drop of drop of the hat. And you know, I, I think Bielsa will be internally disappointed and, and a little bit sad that there won't be a crowd at, at any of these games and that the crowd won't be there if Leeds do go up because he speaks a lot about the city and he speaks a lot about that the emotion he kind of felt with the, the crowd at Newell's and I think he knows what it means to everybody but in a football context and in a coaching context I don't think he would expect it to make any difference at all because he will still think that the players are schooled in the same way they're trained in the same way what's happening round about the pitch doesn't make any difference to what they know they should be doing with the ball. And and I suspect he'll be, as much as he always looks like a, a superstitious guy who never wants to, to count on anything and to, I guess, attempt fate, I think he'll be pretty optimistic. My instinct is that we'll be fitter than most, well, pretty fitter than every other team in the division as we normally are, but we'll be fresh and we will come out of the blocks and other teams won't be able to cope with us. And I can't believe I said that because that's way too optimistic for my normal standards. But I don't know. I have a feeling that this has taken us back to the start. It's taken out all the awkward variables that normally mess up our season, like the uh, the Cardiff crowd and things. It just feels like, particularly in this game, it's, it's playing into our hands, I would say. There's another thing as well, which is that by the time we get to Sunday lunchtime, we'll have had the game between Brentford and Fulham. And I think it's highly unlikely that the players won't want to watch Fulham and Brentford play. They won't want to see what, what comes out of that game, given that it is such a big game to be 
returning with, you know, third against fourth, and so significant as well to, to the top two. And I guess it might just help to give them some sense of what it's going to feel like being in a, a game that matters when you have no crowd around you at all and you have none of the, the match noise that you thrive on. And, and you know, that, that they've been used to playing in front of, in, in some cases, like in Hernandez's case, this might, I, I would assume this is the first time Hernandez will ever have played in front of an empty stadium in anything other than uh, pre-season friendly. And it will be odd and, and it will be unusual. But I guess over the weekend, and, and equally anybody who's kind of followed the Bundesliga as well, you do start to get a feel for it and you do understand what, what it will be like. And and I imagine that weekend one is the key one. Get through weekend one with a good result and you'll feel like it, it, it will start to feel very normal um, and it will start to just feel like the run of things. Um, and, and I do think the absolute, I mean, it's kind of, this kind of obvious thing to say, but the absolute key for everybody and Leeds, not, not least, is to, to start well. I think a strong start in Leeds' position and they're they're going to be very, very hard to catch. The other thing that makes me optimistic for a strong start is that other teams maybe are not used to the level of intensity of a, of a training session that we are. So, And that's obviously done without a crowd there. So hopefully they can, even if they're not slotting into game time, like the normal game phase for them, they should sort of have some memory of this is just murder ball with free kicks and throw-ins. We just need to get back into that mindset. Yeah, and, and they have been doing murder ball sessions. I mean, interestingly, they haven't done any friendlies against opposition teams. Um, there was some discussion about playing Everton and, and I think also Liverpool, but neither of those worked out. I think the idea of a game against Huddersfield was was floated as well. So they've done 11v11s, internal games at Thorpe Arch. Um, and, you know, Bielsa hasn't gone down the route as for example, Klopp did at Liverpool, have taken the players down for a game at Ellen Road. Again, I don't think he's felt the need. I don't think he thinks that they need to worry about the environment around them and they need to, to adapt to that. I think he feels that it's, again, all in the coaching and if he gets that right and if he has them prepped, then then they'll be fine. What I worry about with Leeds is, is whether or not the, the soft tissue injuries, the increase that we've seen in, in Germany, is going to affect them because of the fact that the bodies are pushed so hard and they've had this abnormal stretch of of training at home, much as Leeds kept it as as you know full tilt as they possibly could, it's not the same as being out out of Thorpe Arch every day. And is that is that going to be a factor for them? I mean, I, I'm not expecting Augustine to play at any stage of this run, and I think the issues with his hamstring and his general fitness are, are going to make that extremely difficult and, and highly unlikely. And you know, th- there has been a, a very minor issue with Hernandez hamstring or back injury from from what I'm aware, but. I don't think major, and and as far as I'm aware at this stage, not ruled out of, of the Cardiff game, although I, I, we, we haven't spoken to Bielsa um, at this stage and, and I'm not 100% clear on on, on what, the, what the situation is there. But I think you're talking about standard knocks and niggles more than, than anything else. And in general, across the squad, they, they seem very fit and in good condition. And Michael's right. This is where you hope the intensity of it all pays off. This is where you hope that two years of killing yourself on the scales and of relentlessly working in the way that Bielsa asks you to really, really does work in your favour. On Augustine, is he still at the club? Because there seem to be some quite persistent rumours that he's left and that he's no longer there and that maybe his, his injury was not all that and it was more to do with his general happiness at the club. I mean, is, have you got any more insight in that? He's still here in the sense that he's still in Leeds. Um, but I think on the basis that it's unlikely that he's going to be fit before the end of the season, they need to take a decision on whether or not to have him around the training ground for COVID restrictions as much as anything else. The, the limits on who can go there and the way in which they've managed it have been 
have been very, very tight. I think the, the long and short of it is that he has struggled to get up to speed with Bielsa and his body has struggled to cope with it. This is, you know, he had the hamstring strain at the end of February. It's obviously been a problem in this period where he's been trying to, um, trying to catch up and, and get into first team training before the restart. He did lose a, a lot of weight, but I think still wasn't quite down to the, the weight level that Bielsa would have wanted. But I mean, I, I go back to what I said in the piece I wrote last week, which is that I, I wonder more and more how feasible it is for any mid-season signing to catch up with Bielsa. If you come in a significant way behind, and particularly at the end of the, the January window, is it ever likely that you're going to get to the, the same physical level you know, in a, an ongoing season as Cleek or Phillips or Cooper or, or anybody else? I, I don't think it is. And, you know, it, it's evidently been very, very tough for him. I mean, his his loan, as, as loans do, will, will end uh, at the end of June. And it'll be interesting really to see whether or not Leeds seek to extend that towards the end of the season because in, in financial sense, if he isn't going to be available and he isn't going to play, it, it would you know it, it wouldn't make a, a huge amount of sense, much as the, the players are, are all on wage deferrals at the moment. But the, the, the much bigger question here is whether or not he or Leeds at the end of this season are going to have the appetite for this move that's been proposed from Leipzig. And, and even though it, it has been described several times as, as an obligation, I struggle to see how, if Augustin decides that this is not for him, Leeds would be able to put, well, Leeds or Leipzig would be able to go ahead with the deal. And I don't know where he stands on that. I, I don't know how he feels. I don't know how frustrated about this he is. I, I don't know whether he thinks that with the, the benefit of a full pre-season, he could perform in the way that Bielsa needs him to. Um, but it is a, I think it's a disappointment for everybody because they looked at the way he worked in the lockdown and they thought that actually he was going to be ripe and ready. Uh, for this run of nine games. And it wasn't that we expected him to play a lot because Bamford is in the team and and, and Bamford has Bielsa's faith every day of the week. But I, I think there was the sense that he could have been of some use and that he could actually have made a, a little impact here or there. And, and as it stands, as I say, I'd, I'd be a little surprised if he plays at all. Down to brass tacks then, Phil. What do you think Leeds United need to do between now and in a month and a bit's time to secure promotion? I was having this discussion on Twitter yesterday and I don't think people were delighted that I was getting back into predictions uh, and um, permutations of, of what might happen. I'm kind of looking at 85 points at the moment as a pretty good benchmark for um, automatic promotion. I, I, I kind of get the feeling that if you get to 85 points, it's going to be difficult for anyone to catch you. And, and I would base that on the fact that Fulham needs seven wins for nine games um, to get to, to that level. Uh, and if you look at the fixture list, it is, and granted it's on paper, but it is the, the most difficult of any of the sides in, in that area of the league. They've, they've got Brentford to start with, they've got Leeds, they've got West Brom, they've, they've also got Forest. I mean, I think if Fulham do end up finishing top two, they, they will absolutely deserve it on the basis of the games that are about to be thrown at them. But I kind of feel for Leeds that four wins, five wins would, would probably be enough. I'm loath to say that, and I'm not predicting that they will 100% get those um, although I, you know, I, I would have, like everybody else, I would have strong levels of confidence in them on on the basis of the way they were playing before the season was suspended. But you just haven't got this season a top three in the way that you did last season. Norwich, Leeds, and Sheffield United were were so tightly packed for so much of the running, and and even the weeks and months prior to the running as well. Leeds were never able to shake off Sheffield United. Norwich, in in the end, got away and and won the title. There was a, quite a sizable gap there, but it wasn't ever the case that in the way that Fulham are now, Sheffield United were seven points back and, and had a, a massive amount of ground to make up at this point in the season. It was always very, very close and it was always dependent on just a couple of results here and there. And 
you know, as I say, it, it's going to take a, a massive stretch um, from Fulham. But, I mean, they're, they're making all the right noises. I, I was reading quotes from Tom Kearney this week, which, you know, we're basically saying we're, we're coming for the top two. But I think even as a starting point, they have to win the first game against Brentford. They've got to get they've got to get three points from that because they realistically have a limited number of times now where they can afford to drop points before it is ultimately the playoffs for them. So 14 points from a possible 27. It's not a huge ask, is it, over nine games? It's four wins, as you say, and possibly a couple of draws thrown in there. That would bring us round to 85. You look at that fixture list, and like you say, all things being equal, and we exclude the Leeds United factor from this, but we should be doing that, shouldn't we? Well, the one thing I wanted to find out with Bielsa was how it had gone from previously when from a, a kind of standing start, so the start of the season. And obviously we know that he's had a good standing start twice at Leeds, but I wanted to go back further than that to Lille and Marseille and to Bilbao, but then back to Mexico and Argentina with Newells and um, Villas Sarsfield. And he averages at the start of the season 15 points from nine games, which would, if he if he can replicate that would take Leeds to 86. And again, 86 feels to me like a, a very, very strong tally and, and a tally that gives Fulham the leeway of literally one defeat in this run of run of matches. Uh, so it is doable, but I think like everybody else, you'll feel a lot more confident if after the Cardiff game there are three points in, in the bag, if after the Fulham game it's it's gone to plan, if after the first, you know, the, the initial bust of two or three matches, Leeds have made a little bit of ground, taking a little bit of ground away from Brentford and, and Fulham in particular. I think then we'll we'll all feel a lot more comfortable about it because we, you know, anybody who watched last season knows what, knows how it can go here uh, and knows how quickly it, it can all fall apart. But you would, you would like to think that with that experience behind them and also another season of, of Bielsa drilling it into them, that they'll be programmed in a way that carries them through. And it's not a traditional end of season, is it? They've had a three-month break and we tend to come out of the blocks after we've had a rest. Yeah, which you know has, has been evident at the start of both of Bielsa's seasons. I think I was almost as surprised by the performance down at Bristol City in the start of this season as I was in uh, with the Stoke City game in year one with Bielsa, just because... After, obviously, the, the huge kick in the teeth against Derby, it, it, we weren't sure initially whether Bielsa would stay. And then it was the question of, can he raise everybody to go again, given that they've you know, they've killed themselves for nine months and, and got nothing out of it in the end? And the, the performance at Ashton Gate, I felt, was so fresh and so vibrant. It was like watching Bielsa's first game again. And, and I just thought it was so impressive the way he was able to get that out of them there on, on day one. And I think straight away you had that feeling that this this season could be right on the money again. So, yeah, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, that, the way they play, you know, the, the fitness and everything else, they should be well positioned to to start strongly. But I think we'll be happy if we can say that with hindsight rather than um, predicting it at the moment. We spoke on the Square Ball podcast earlier in the week about Michael Dawson, what he was saying uh, at Forest about them hunting down the top two. I mean, you mentioned there about Fulham having us in their sights. Do we look at Brentford and Forest, who are just for the benefit of anybody who's not got the table in front of them. They're 11 points behind us, 10 points behind West Brom. Are they a serious threat, do you think? Or is that just them saying some you know, media-friendly, kind of fan-friendly chat in interviews? Um, yeah, probably a bit of that. I think um, it's, I mean, Dawson's a, a, an old pro and a, a pretty switched-on pro, and, and he'll know that at this point in the season, it's important to say the right things. You know, he's been at promoted clubs like Hull before and, and everything else. I think that, they will become a serious threat if Leeds have an appalling start. That's what I would say. It's going to take a, a poor 
run of results from Leeds to let them back in. Because I go back to what I was saying about Fulham and you know the, the margin for error. If Leeds win four to five games, it, it becomes nigh on impossible for Brentford or Forest to catch them, regardless of what they do and, and regardless of, of how well they play or how good the, their own results are. I think when I look at the way they play, Brentford feel to me like the team with the potential to reel off a lot of wins in, in this in this little stretch. I mean, they play to win. They play a very good, aggressive, attacking style of football, which works for them extremely well. I think Forrest really were one of the teams who, who probably benefited from the lockdown more than most, or might you know potentially depend on how things go. But they were probably as happy as anybody to to pull up the drawbridge at that point because the form wasn't great and they were slipping back and things were, were just becoming a, a little bit dicey back there. And and you know despite Dawson's confidence, I, I've you know even a Forest reporter Paul Taylor said. I can't see it. You know, I, I think it, it's probably asking too much for Forrest to get seriously involved in that. It does, like last season, it does feel like two, two from three to me. Well, we go back to the slump in Leeds United's form earlier in the season. And one of the guys who came to symbolise the turnaround of that time was Luke Ayling. And you've spoken to him this week, Phil, uh, via Zoom, which sounds like it was fun. Uh, how was that then? And how is he? What's the mood like in the squad? He's great. Yeah, no, it, it was a bit of a battle. Um, my internet connection, I think, more than anything. I blame the kids who were on, on other laptops, um, although I usually blame the kids for everything. But no, he's he's in, in good form, although it's very rare to find Ailing in, in anything other than good form, which, which, to be quite honest, was one of the reasons why I wanted to do a piece with him. I wanted to speak to a player before the restart and to really get into the into the guts of, of what was going on after Christmas and then in that, that run of, of five wins. And and the reason that I kind of gravitated towards Ailing, um, aside from him just being generally a, a very interesting interview, was because when I think of him, aside from the volley against uh, Huddersfield and the chicken dance away at Hull, I, I, I think of that post-match interview at Forest um, after the, the 2-0 defeat down there, which is easily as deflated as I've, I've ever seen him. And I think with the exception of the the second leg of the playoff against Derby, is as deflated as I've ever seen a player under Bielsa. I mean, we I think a lot of us were worried that night because it kind of prolonged what had been a, a very mixed run of form and things that had been working for Bielsa just didn't feel like they were working. Leeds were conceding a lot of soft goals. A lot of the blame was, was falling on Casilla and it seemed to be affecting them. Uh, and we were aware that the first goal going in against them was not good. It wasn't something they were recovering well from. And Ailing was on media duty that night. And, and he doesn't do a lot because people know that that he, he does have a stammer, um, which which actually he's, he's very, very good at, at dealing with. And, and I'm always, you know, I always think great credit to him for, for doing the interviews that he does because I, I don't think it's easy. But he'd been aware of the pressure building and he'd been aware of some criticism of Bielsa and the individual players and the, the structure of the team and some of the selection policy and everything else. And, He'd said to the communications department at Leeds, look, next time there's media to be done, post-match media, and next time there's a poor result, I'll do it. You know, stick me out and I'm happy to take the heat and, and take the questions. So he did it at QPR where Leeds obviously lost 1-0 and, you know, as, as bullish as he as he could be. But then at Forest, when he came out, he basically said, look, it, it's the same old story. We, we played some nice football to a point, which, you know, you, you kind of read on paper and thought, God, that's, that, that's quite a cutting statement, that really. Um, and, you know, we conceded a soft goal and the first goal killed us. And it just, as he said himself, it'd just been a build-up of a couple of months, a build-up of poor results and of mistakes. And him, I think the phrase he used was us letting things pass us by. And it kind of came out in that. It was just a bit demoralised and it was a bit frustrated. And, and it, it kind of smacked of, 
of him of all people, and, and he is one of the most upbeat, optimistic people in the dressing room, slightly losing faith in the season and, and what was going on. And why I wanted to speak to him was to ask how it was that it went from that on the Saturday to a really, really top performance down at Brentford on the Tuesday, which as much as we all joked and, and you know criticised the comments by Thomas Frank saying, you know, Leeds will, Leeds will fear us coming here, this is a nightmare game for them. It kind of was. I mean, Leeds record at Griffin Park is woeful. The tight ground and the way Brentford tend to play just seems to bring the worst out of them consistently. But like Aileen said, they went there, they played Brentford at their own game, they played them off the pitch, albeit in, in a one-all draw. And then they went on this run of five wins, not only five wins, but five wins without conceding a goal and actually without looking troubled at, at any stage during that sequence. And the question I had for him was, why? What happened? Do you think it was a case maybe that he and the team took ownership of the situation? You're saying then about, he commented about things passing them by. Was it a case that they decided to take this by the scruff of the neck then at Brentford? I think he has. Without any doubt, I don't think he's ever played better for Leeds. And he's played he's played like a right-back possessed. And I said in the piece, a bit kind of touched by magic, but almost playing as if it had suddenly become personal to him. You know, I, I don't mean personal in the sense that it matters, because obviously it mattered from the start. But I think the criticism was personal and the, the individual battles became personal. And also, the, you know, the idea of promotion, it, it was kind of personal and this... this insistence that they were going to get there and actually they weren't just going to cave in and, and he's come up with goal after goal for a player who doesn't score goals and, and hasn't done during his career and okay he says that he should score more but you know you tend to find there is a big difference between those who do chip in and those who don't and those who don't can go for long long stretches like Berardi for example plays in similar position tailing plays it right back but he'd gone virtually into his 30s by the time he, he finally scored down at at Newport in that, that FA Cup game. But I just think all the inspiration has been coming, or a lot of the inspiration has been coming from Ailing. And I think that's been deliberate. I think it's been purposeful. I, I think that's what he, he meant to happen. And, you know, he said he, he got on the bus after Forrest and he flicked on his phone and he could see that people straight away were talking about his interview and, and were saying, you know, this is not a good sign. You know, it's not a good sign to hear him, to see him like this and to hear him speaking like this. And so he went home, he had a sulk on the Saturday night, but then the next day said, back to work, let's let's get back to it. But I think what has become clear is that, and we we have spoken previously about this, but it's the first time I think the players kind of touched on it, is that the, the post-match analysis meeting that Bielsa had was just so crucial for them and, and so important in stemming the flow of almost negativity or doubt that was that was in their heads. Bielsa's tactical analysis video meetings can be quite dry, I think, and can be quite heavy going and they're, they're very technical and you've got to stick with them. They're, they're very good, I think. It gives you huge amounts of information, but it's not laugh-a-minute comedy show. You know, you, it can be drawn out and it can be quite sapping, especially when you're on a, a bad run of form and you know that you're not playing as well as you can. And what he did was he, he basically changed tack a bit he started picking out the really good bits at Forest and started trying to say to them, you are a really good team. You know, you are basically the best team in this division. When you play your top football, you know, it's very difficult for teams to beat you. And actually, when I look back at the evidence of the games that you've lost, not a huge amount has changed. You know, there are things we're not doing quite as well. There are things we can improve. But generally speaking, we're coming out on the wrong side of a lot of fine margins. And Ailing said it, it was a really kind of powerful powerful meeting and all the players came out of it feeling energised, feeling like it had been the, the shot in the arm that they, they really needed and then the next night they go to, to Brentford, they play extremely well and they come off the pitch thinking 
why is it that we feel under the cosh playing like that and Brentford are supposedly flying, but they've struggled to live with us tonight? And it, you know, th- there's no doubt when you look at the results that something changed in, in that couple of day period between Forest and Brentford and that they, they haven't looked back from that point. And, and I did feel in March, without wanting to without wanting to make a prediction that was never never going to be tested, it did feel in, in March like they were they were heading for promotion. It really did. They felt like they were they were kind of careering through the games and, and looking almost unstoppable. And it's it's been absolutely critical because it, that slump not stopped at that point in February. I think in terms of the top two, they, they would have drifted into some quite big trouble. I think touching on promotion there, Luke Aylin is without doubt one of those players that I want us to get promoted for. I think we've said previously on one of the, the previous shows that I almost want this for the players and for Bielsa as much as I want it for myself. And I think... Luke Ayling in many ways kind of embodies that. So he gets his shot at the Premier League quite late in his career because he's going to be turning 29 at the end of August. So he's kind of an elder statesman in the squad these days uh, for his career arc, which which we'll come on to in a second, but also his personality as well. The fact that he's such such a likeable bloke and I think he absolutely loves being at Leeds. I think what we're talking about there, how down he was after Forrest, he, he does wear his heart on his sleeve and he doesn't. he's not one of these players who tries to put a brave face on it when things are going badly and he doesn't particularly try and play it down either when things are going well. Like for all the fact he looks crushed at Forest, then you get his elation at scoring his goals and the fact that even now he's there on Twitter constantly saying that his goal against Huddersfield was the best of the season and should win goal goal of the season on there. It's just a nice kind of, I don't know, it's nice to see a footballer who looks like he's actually enjoying it and is enjoying the ups and is also feeling the downs, which I think as a fan you need to have. The thing that stuck out for me in that article, Phil, I nearly fell off my chair when I read this, did we really sign him for only £200,000? So I'm told. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, bear in mind that ailing in 2016 was not the ailing that, that we've got in, in 2020 at Leeds. He, as he says himself, in the season beforehand, he'd been in and out, he'd been injured, um, Steve Cottrell had been sacked, Lee Johnson had come in, and he didn't think that he had a particularly good year. And it was apparent to him quite early on that, that he wasn't going to fit under Johnson, that Johnson didn't particularly rate him, didn't particularly want him. They were shifting from a back three that Ailing had played into a back four that they bizarrely weren't convinced about him being being any good for on, on the right-hand side. And and in fairness to Lee Johnson, he has said since, you know, I, it was a mistake. You know, I, I misjudged him. And, and I think his phrase was, we've, we've been found wanting on, on that one. And they have. So he wasn't a player who was going to command a particularly high fee. He was actually amazed to find that Leeds were interested in him. And not only Leeds, but Celtic. I mean, he... Before he came to Leeds, he, he thought that the move to Celtic was done. It had virtually been agreed. It, they, Celtic wanted him. But then, as Ailing tells the story, they, they kind of overspent on another player. They, they pushed the budget a little bit too far and I think decided that it wasn't prudent to add Ailing to the squad. So Ailing came to, to Leeds instead. And I mean, I, I don't know about you two, but I don't remember being particularly... I don't mean being negative about the move at all, but I don't remember being particularly blown away by it either. It was a defender coming in who, as much as I'd seen of him at Bristol City, hadn't really stood out in that period. I hadn't seen a huge amount of him at Yeovil. You know, I knew of him, I knew who he was and everything else, but there was nothing in his game that made him look like the, the fullback that he's become under Bielsa. And it, it has turned out to be a, an absolute snip. But I mean, just to touch on something Michael said there as well about Ailing enjoying his football... 
that is definitely not true of every footballer. You know, not every footballer enjoys their career, regardless of how successful they are. Not everybody enjoys the attention and the pressure and the, the kind of constant in the, the public eye experience that you have. But you can tell that Ailing loves it. And I think what, what proves that is the fact that when he was in Arsenal's academy, he had the the offer to go to Yeovil. And, you know, I went to Yeovil in League One. A lot of the Leeds fans have been to Yeovil as well. And it is it is out, out on a limb. You know, it is in the middle of nowhere for a city centre London boy. You know, it's a big, big move in a geographical sense. And it was also a big step down from Arsenal to Yeovil. And, and he knew that. But he just said to himself, you know, if, if I don't do this at 19, and if I don't take this opportunity to go and play, I might never play. Because realistically, there aren't that many managers and that many coaches who are going to gamble on a 19 or 20-year-old defender at Arsenal who's never kicked a ball for the first team. You know, they've got their jobs, they've got their jobs to worry about, they've got their own careers to think about. And, you know, it's that old live and die by your decisions thing. And he just thought to himself, if I say no to Yeovil, when's the next time that somebody's going to ring my phone and say, there's an offer on the table, you can go. And he's one of these, it's one of those great stories of somebody who is prepared to drop further towards the bottom to climb back to the top rather than just sit somewhere near the top, but completely out of the picture at, at one of the biggest clubs in the country. It takes a wise head on a 19-year-old's shoulders to make that sort of move, I think. So absolutely fair play to him. Fair play as well to Lee Johnson for admitting his mistakes. It takes a big man to do that. But I don't remember knowing anything about Luke Haley when he signed for Leeds. About you? Same thing, really. And as Phil said, it seemed a little bit underwhelming that we were signing a player who essentially someone else in the division was wanting rid of because the fee suggested that he was... Basically, just surplus to requirements there, and you think, well, if if they've got if Bristol have got better players, then we need better players. But I'm interested, Phil. What what was it about him that made the club look at him in the first place? Then, given as he says himself, he wasn't in great form. He wasn't really a consistent starter. What what was it in the stats that made them think he'd be a good player? I honestly can't answer that because we're going back four years now to the time when Gary Monk was in charge, and it, it was right at the very start of the season that he came in. I mean, I was I was told about it on the night of the the League Cup game over at Fleetwood, which Leeds very nearly lost. And and in that week, there was a lot of pressure on Monk. It had gone badly wrong at QPR on the first day of the season. And then they, they kind of got out of jail slightly away at Fleetwood. I think from speaking to Monk at the time and, and recalling what he said about him, I think they felt that there was a there was a very, very good, strong, consistent player there. I think they thought that defensively he could be you know, he could be extremely reliable. Um, and Monk was big on reliable players. He, he liked, but in, in a very different way. But, you know, Bielsa thinks the same. Bielsa likes players that he knows he can depend on and players that he knows are drilled to a level that they can they can play every weekend without fail and do, do what he asks of them. But I don't think anybody at the time tried to play it up as a huge sign. And it, it really wasn't like that at all. It, it was, they felt it was a good sign. And I think they felt that for the money, it, it was... It, it was decent. It was worth doing. But his form was excellent under Monk. I, mean, I, I think second probably to this season, I think that was his, his best year. And you, you started to see in him a, a proper wing-back as opposed to just a, a right-sided centre-back or a fairly bog-standard right-back. There, there was that bit of verve and, and that bit of, of skill in him. But I'd love to ask Monk that. I'd love to be able to ask Monk or, or anybody who analysed Ailing back then what it was specifically that made them think that that he was the one to go for. Because if you look at his stats and performance now, it's, it's blindingly obvious why he's a good player. You know, it doesn't take any effort on Scout or any of the analysis sites to pick out the numbers and the videos and the clips that show why he is so good. It was a, an inspired signing. It was. And, and I think possibly with the exception of Fernandez, although I think they're, they're kind of on level pegging, it probably has been Monk's best. 
I'm sure Gary Monk would say something about him being a member of the group or something along those lines. And well, to, for two thirds of us anyway, a man whose hair might just make you envious. Oh, Luke Aliens, oh, it makes me envious. God, yeah. I can do a, a rock, um, rock star slide in front of the West Stand if you pay me. No, I, I wish I had his barnet without any doubt. Now that lockdown is easing, it's time to step up the personal care just that wee bit with Harry's who sponsor the Phil Hayes Show. And if you've bought quality razor blades before, you'll know they cost a small fortune. And Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, who are two ordinary blokes who were just sick of it. And they knew that the only way to ensure quality was to start your own company and buy your own factory. And it means that you get great quality products from Harry's at a fair price. The blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brand. And you can kick things off with Harry's. Get a trial set to get everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. You get a weighted ergonomic handle, a precision engineered five blade cartridge, rich lathering shave gel. It makes you smell how you want to smell as well. And the travel blade cover too. Phil uses Harry's and you can too. You can claim your trial set for $3.95 and you can give us a little bit of love on the podcast as well back in the process. You'll get it delivered to you. The razor handle, the five blade cartridge, the shave gel and the travel blade cover. Harry's.com forward slash Phil Hay right now. Head to harrys.com forward slash Phil Hay. Part three then, where we turn this over to the masses on Twitter via your Twitter account, Phil. We give uh, the public vote a chance uh, and it decides the topic for this bit. Will we do this next week then with the football returning? Do we want to carry, uh, roll it on a little bit more? I think we may do, depending on what's going on, but it's, I've enjoyed it. It's been a good chance to reminisce about bits and pieces that I haven't, I haven't spoken about or thought about for, for a while. So as long as we've got ideas and, and topics, yeah, I think we will. Well, this week it was a choice of the revival of Matthias Click, who came in with 38%. That was the silver medal position. McCormack's ups and downs finished third with 10.3%. But the winner, Deals Leeds missed out on with just over half the vote on 51.7% with 9,500 people voting. So a huge turnout. We must listen to the point. It was nearly 52%. And we know that when it's 52%, we have to do it. Contentious. <laughs> <laughs> Having a little bit of fun, having a little bit of fun. Right then, so obviously a good starting point, a good jump off point for this is the, the one that we saw in the documentary. And I think actually that was probably in terms of informing us about stuff inside Leeds United that's gone on. That was the most informative bit of the documentary, the Dan James transfer. We, we know all about it, so we probably don't need to dwell on it too much. But that was the, the deal that nearly was. I mean, does this happen very often when a deal gets so close where you just sat there waiting to sign contracts? Not especially. No, it, it tends to be the case, certainly at individual clubs, that once you get to that point, you're as good as done and, and you basically are done. And it doesn't stop clubs being very paranoid still right up until the point that, that everything's processed. But it is unusual for the rug to be pulled right at the last minute. I mean, the, the Dan James one was very, very extreme. It's extreme example. Great example. Um, but obviously everybody knows the ins and outs of that. So we, I, I don't want to go over that one one too much. But I think with this, it, it, I didn't want it to be about players who Leeds were broadly interested in or were kind of linked with, well, Leeds going to sign, I don't know, off the top of my head, Wesley Schneider at, at any point. You know, was, was any deal like that going to happen? I, I wanted to go back to the deals that were pretty much over the line or were very, very close to the line and for some reason didn't happen. And then the implications of them not happening. Just to give you an example of that, you might remember that in the summer when Pontus Janssen signed from Torino, prior to him coming, Leeds were interested in Joel Ekstrand. And, and Ekstrand was a good defender, good calibre defender with a, a good pedigree and, and good track record behind him. But he had big problems with his knees. And Cellino was advised, Massimo Cellino was advised by various people, look, do not sign this guy. It's too much of a risk. 
too much of a liability. You know, if you give him a permanent contract, you might find that he isn't able to play or doesn't play often enough. And it's just money down the tubes. And more to the point, Gary Monk needs a centre-back. He actually needs, it's not, this isn't just padding for the squad. He needs a central defender. So we need somebody who's going to play. But Chilino, being Chilino, said, no, no, I like this guy. The finances of the deal are good. So Ekstrand came in for, for a medical examination. And the staff had a good look at it. Everybody else at the club had a, a good look at it. And little by little, Chilino was persuaded that you, you cannot do this deal. You know, it makes no sense to do it. And and I know that subsequently, Ekstrand denied that that was the case and he went to try and get an independent scan down in, in London. But the, the long and short of it was that too many people at Leeds felt it was a, a massive risk to, to invest any money in him. So the upshot of them abandoning the Ekstrand deal was that they landed on Janssen. Uh, from Torino and he came in on loan and, and obviously irrespective of what's gone on and that you know the, the questions that have been asked of um, Janssen's character and the way he left and, and everything else was fantastic in that first season under Gary Monk and, and I think in, in the main was top quality centre-back in the championship and Ekstrand on the other hand went to Bristol City on a free and literally played twice before leaving the following summer and it's just funny how one deal that's almost there and, and collapses can lead to another, but equally on other occasions, one deal that's virtually there like Dan James can collapse and there's no way of compensating for it. I mean, Harvey Barnes is the most recent example of one that sticks in my mind. I mean, because he was very close, I, I believe, Phil, but I remember thinking, obviously West Brom got knocked out of the other playoff semi-final last season to Villa and we went and did the same against Derby in the following hours. But I remember thinking when West Brom lost, ha, in your face, Harvey Barnes, even though he had long since returned to Leicester, it just, it felt like a little bit of vindication that you wouldn't have gone up anyway. That's the mindset of a football fan. Barnes was a superb signing for West Brom to a point, and the point being the stage at which he was recalled midway through the season by Leicester because they they needed him, but also he was playing extremely well and scoring a lot of goals and and was quite demonstrably good enough to to play in, in the Premier League. From Leeds' point of view, that was a bizarre deal because he'd gone to Thorpe Arch and he'd had his medical and he'd picked a squad number and, and he'd said to Alter as he left left the training ground, I'll see you on Monday, um, to basically finish the paperwork and, and do the deal. Alter said, great, yeah, terrific, everything's done and off they went. And Leeds played um, down at South End, um, pre-season friendly on the Sunday. Lovely, lovely hot day, played fairly well, you know, it was it was it all seemed to be coming together quite nicely. And then on the way home, Alter got a, a phone call saying, sorry about this, but Barnes has changed his mind and he's decided to go to West Brom, which, you know, Leeds just couldn't believe that they'd been kind of gazumped in, in that way. And I think the, the excuse that was given was that he wanted to be closer to home or whatever else. But, you know, that was that was a setback for him. And, and that 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 kind of compounded what went on with um, Florian Josephson, which, you know, is another player that they targeted in Bielsa's first window, who, as far as Leeds were concerned, was coming for a medical with them. That was pretty much wrapped up and, and all good to go. He decided he was he was going from Brentford, um, another player that Bielsa was happy to take. And then again, got a phone call from the agent saying, look, we've had an offer from Derby, we're taking the offer from Derby and we're on the way for a medical there. And Otter said to me himself, that was a day where he smashed his phone by throwing it against the wall because the frustration of it was so much, he couldn't contain himself. And the kind of context of what was going on at the time was that they they were getting to the point where they needed players, they needed signings. I mean, I, I, I go back to a story I've told a few times, but when we came out of the pre-season friendly at Oxford uh, in that summer, you had this meeting in the car park of Bielsa and Otter and Kinnear and, and Radrazani, who were all at the game. And without overhearing what was said and without knowing what was said, you 
there hadn't really been any significant business done by that point. And you did get the feeling that Bielsa might have been saying, look, can we get on with this, please? Can we get some get some players in through the door? And Barry Douglas was done, you know, very shortly after that. Um, obviously, Patrick Bamford came through the door as well. But they wanted Barnes. They thought they had Barnes. I think still Barnes would have been an absolutely terrific signing. But again, it, it is kind of sliding door stuff. You, and obviously, Leeds didn't go up last season, so you couldn't say that the, the transfer policy worked a hundred percent anyway. But they would have almost certainly lost him at the turn of the year unless they'd been able to persuade Leicester in a way that, that West Brom Brom want. But yeah, I mean, that a little like Dan James was almost as close as you can get without actually getting it done. One thing I'm curious to know, Phil, you know, under these circumstances, is there ever any kind of blowback in terms of fallouts with, be it players, agents, other clubs? Because that's the thing that we always wonder about as fans, don't we? Because I'm sure this kind of skullduggery happens quite frequently, but and it obviously very frustrating for, for Victor Orta. But what happens next? There absolutely can be, although I think it depends on the circumstances and I think it depends on the, the tone of the conversations. You know, I think if you if you get an abrupt phone call telling you that, that Barnes has decided on West Brom and that's the end of it, then it's it's not going to go down well. And by the same token, I don't think you'll see Hugh Jenkins posted at Ellen Road anytime soon after what went on with, with Dan James. It was it was interesting not so long ago to read an interview from Jenkins where he, he pretty much admitted, you know, yeah, I pulled the plug on this because I just thought it was a terrible deal for Swansea. I just didn't think we should be doing it. And actually, you know, from a neutral standpoint, I, I quite respect him for that. Swansea, his club, and, you know, looking at it through Swansea's glasses, he evidently thought that the idea of sending James on loan to Leeds for the second half of the season was was ridiculous. Um, but th- I don't think anything has, has ever, certainly with this regime, has, has ever upset them more than, than Dan James' deal. And, and you saw Alter crying in the, the video at the point at which it all fell through because... It wasn't entirely Swansea's fault, this, and there were aspects in which Leeds were to blame. But on the day of the deadline, it looked to everybody in Leeds like this was going through. It looked to Dan James like it was going through. He'd been pictured with his shirt. He'd done all the club media stuff. They had somebody from Sky who had to sit for hours downstairs in the reception at at Ellen Road and ultimately never got the the interview he was after. So that one really stung, uh, and that was was a big frustration. And I'm sure Harvey Barnes did too. But in terms of the the blowback and, and the fallout, I think it depends entirely on each individual deal and, and on how the collapse is handled. If you're not careful, you can find yourself sleeping with the fishes as well. If the uh, the Thomas Ravi deal is anything to, to go by, going back some way. And this is one that, I mean, younger fans might not remember this, but during the mid-90s, it was around the time that we signed Tony Uboa. Leeds were desperate for a big name striker uh, to fit into the squad and were trawling Europe. I mean, like uh, Ruben Sosa was, was mooted. They were looking at like Faustino Aspria amongst others. And Thomas Scuravi was the the nearly man who we almost got. And I remember bumping into Bill Fotherby outside Ellen Road, because as I've said before, me and my dad used to just pop down and we'd go hang around, you know, you'd go to the shop, watch the training, whatever it might be. And you'd occasionally bump into these characters and, and speak to them in the car park. And the story is stuck in my head that Bill Fotherby told us in the car park one day that Thomas Scuravi had got in the car that the club had laid on from Leeds Bradford Airport and chain smoked all the way to the medical and then back again. But that wasn't even the thing that scuppered the deal. There was far more far more to it than that. The Scuravi one was a complete liberty in the sense that Bill Fotherby flew over to Italy in the belief that he was doing a deal. And I don't I don't even think in the belief that he was gonna have to fight too much for it. I think he thought there was a willingness to sell and that it was just a case of go over there, nail down the tax, get it done and, and then come back with him. And to land and then be told, look, there's there's no prospect of a deal at all, I think is pretty much every um, chief executive's 
worst nightmare. And and I think these days, certainly in England, it's, it's all even when it all goes wrong. It's it generally tends to be far more professional than that, and far less cloak and dagger and backroom fallouts. But yeah, it, it it can get bitter and twisted. And the reason it gets bitter and twisted is because a you've got very very good players involved in some of these deals, but also you've got big money involved, invested interests, and ultimately. Players at the end of the day have to make choices, and and if you're given choices, you've got to plump for one club or another. And to an extent, it surprised me that Harvey Barnes said no to Leeds. But I think if you if you try not to look at it from within the bubble of Leeds, he might have felt himself that Leeds were a club who talked about promotion a lot but competed for it very rarely. Whereas West Brom were coming down with you know a fairly big budget, fairly high level of ambition, and you know it, it would. Be harsh to say that he backed the wrong horse in the sense that both Leeds and um, West Brom finished in the playoffs, but I think he would have made a big difference. The Skouravi deal fell through because he basically had talcum powder for knees, and they found this out when they when they X-rayed them. But there were some rather heavy-looking gentlemen with strong Italian, should we say, family connections that were kind of milling around because he was supposed to be signing from Genoa, saying that don't don't look at his knees, don't look at his knees, just sign the paper, that kind of vibe. But in the end, they did pull the plug and blamed it on Leeds, even though they were ready to do the deal. They couldn't blame it on Skouravi having dodgy knees because Genoa would not allow the fact that he had these bad knees to get out so they could sell him uh, in future. I mean, Michael, do you remember this time, sort of the mid-90s troll for a striker? And can you remember desperately wanting them just because we were linked with them? The Skouravi deal, was a, I was a little bit too young to properly remember this, but I suppose the first big striker hunt I remember ended in Yeboah and it did seem incredibly exciting. It seems odd these days to imagine that you you would be signing the top striker from the Bundesliga and have never seen them play and not even be able to see a, a clip of their goals until one appears on Look North. Um, but having seen little bits of him, it just felt incredibly exotic and exciting to be signing someone like that. I think sometimes it's just the fact of, of wanting that big player to come to you, even if you don't really know anything about them. I love reading about the Skiravi deal as well, because you can almost smell the cigars. You can almost smell the, the medical room when Alan Sutton comes in and says, look, there's, there's big problems with his knees. And it's like that classic pre-modern era deal where you're told no, despite having gone out to Italy. And then they do roll up at Elland Road, but it's dodgy knees, can't be done, concerns with the joints, um, too much of a risk. Uh, and then, like you say, you've got Genoa trying to pretend that, that it was them pulling the plug on it. It's got a lovely, lovely old school feel to it, which you kind of don't get with transfers anymore. In the uh, the Premier Passions, the old Sunderland documentary, I remember in that they were trying to sign um, an Israeli striker, I think he was called Harazi. And he turned up and said to them, yep, completely fit, no problems at all. And they did an x-ray and found he had a broken leg. <laughs> he was only a hairline <laughs> fracture, admittedly. But he just thought, I'm going to bluff my way through the medical, we'll never know. If only Chilino had been on it, he'd have been fine. But sometimes these things get close, sometimes they don't as well. And the one we've spoken about, I think a number of times on this show is is the Max Gradle one. Uh, and a player that at the time we would have desperately, desperately loved back, but you knew what GFH were doing, even though you kind of wanted to believe they were just playing on our affections to Gradle, uh, talking about re-signing him in that January window in 2013. They were. They, they were chancing their arm though. I mean, it was, a, it was kind of classic GFH in the sense that the news got out and then they tried to deny that they were interested, but there were people who had been in the same room as David Haig when Gradle had called him and had overheard what had been discussed. And, you know, they were genuinely saying to him, would you like to come back? But minus, I think, anything like the financial clout that was needed to do it. And, you know, that is one that, that kind of appeals to people and, and writes good headlines. And, and we did run the story at the time. But equally, you know, I'd, I'd kind of relate it to somebody like Alan Smith, who 
as he got towards the the end of his uh, the end of his Premier League career and the end of his time at Newcastle was linked and linked and linked with Leeds constantly. The idea of will Smith come back? Will they do it? And actually, when you speak to Grayson and when you when you hear what Smith says about it as well, that was never happening. That one, you know, it, it was a constant kind of rumor mill effort. But um, Smith wasn't keen because he didn't think he could do himself justice. I think Grayson might have been keen had he been able to do it, but then money might have been an issue as it tended to be in in that era. But no, Grado. Grado was a, a kind of genuine target in the sense that GFH did approach him. But I think realism, uh, I don't think there was a lot in that deal. I don't think that one was ever going to go through. Around that same time, actually, one that springs to mind off the back of that is Joel Ward. That was about, was about a year before that, wasn't it? Or thereabouts, 18 months or something, when we raided the rest of the Portsmouth squad. Um, but for whatever reason, he didn't end up signing with the rest of them. And with hindsight given that he's gone on to establish himself as an absolutely solid Premier League player, probably would have been the one worth ponying up the money for, but that never got finished. No, he was another one who came and did his medical at Leeds um, because as far as he and his agent were concerned and also Warnock, it was best to just have everything in place so that when the money was there to do it, it could just go through and um, it wouldn't be a case of then having to cross your fingers about a medical if you knew it had already been passed. It was literally just the formalities. But Leeds had already spent 500 grand getting um, Jason Pierce from Portsmouth um, and they were in the process of trying to clear out other players to do deals and money was tight and it and base for you that the sums weren't adding up. So they gave Ward a swerve and, and he went to Crystal Palace and like you say, it turned out to be extremely solid and, and very sort of reliable, reliable fullback. That was one that in the end came down to money more than anything. And, and the, they do fall apart for various reasons. Some of them can be down to pure politics. Some of them can be down to medical issues. Sometimes it is just pound notes, you know, who is prepared to pay what and do they have enough to do it? But you're right, it was funny with Ward because having swerved him, they, they then did David Norris, they did Luke Varney. The, there was a massive fire sale going on at Portsmouth at the time. They were completely broken, needed rid of people. Um, and Leeds served them up with a lot of cash in that summer because there were a lot of players down there who, who wanted, wanted to get on board. And symptomatic of that time and the Bates approach to transfers, Lee Bowyer, is it true that he nearly came back at one point? Yes, if you take Bates and Harvey at the word on this, but I remember speaking to a few people about it and I think the story is essentially correct. It was the summer of, of 2011 and Boyer was obviously starting to get towards the end and he was available on a free and he, he had options, but Leeds were, Leeds were pretty convinced that he was going to come, that he would he would come back, he would make his return. And I mean, it would have been a, a very big story if he had given what had gone on when he left and, and prior to, to him leaving. And, and his kind of unintentionally influential role in, in the whole collapse of the, the Aliri era and the, the Champions League era. But he had an offer from Ipswich as well. And he was living down in London. He had family and, and, and what have you. And kind of last minute, he decided that he was going to go for Ipswich rather than Leeds. And, and that was one that, having thought, this could be great fun, this one, this, you know, this could be great to write about, just disappeared overnight. So yeah, again, he, he was pretty close. To say never go back, would you like to have seen him back, Michael? I think the cav- the biggest caveat in the world there is if you take Bates and Harvey at their word, which I would tend not to. I'm, I'm in the same view. I, I don't think he should have come back. I'm kind of glad it didn't happen. As, as much as his time at the club was itself quite um, controversial and mixed in terms of the, the good and the bad, I think looking back on him now, I can remember the goals he scored and some of the great games he played. I think if I had to look at him playing in one of our most mediocre seasons, it, it might have just been a bit of a letdown. That was the, the famous ugly window, as Harvey described it, when they got to the end of it, having struggled to sign anybody of note. And Boyer would probably have softened the blow of, of what was not a, a great couple of months anyway. But ultimately, that one went begging. 
Well, Phil, you're, you're the journalist with your finger on the pulse. Any that happened that we should know about or nearly men that maybe didn't quite make the cut? Any, any little inside scoops you can give us? Well, the one that always sticks out in my head is Darius Vassell. And this was from the summer in, in 2010. And Vassell was quite a way past his, his England career, but still playing at a relatively high level. And he'd been in, in Turkey for a couple of seasons. He, he was on a free. And we got wind of the fact that Leeds were interested in him and we ran a story on this. And then the Mail did as well, Daily Mail did, saying that Leeds were keen and, and wanted to sign him. And Leeds denied this flatly. You know, they, they were on the phone saying, this is completely incorrect. So held my hands up and said, OK, well, we thought the information was good. We thought this was, was solid, but fair enough. If you say you're not keen and, and you're not in for him, that's fine. And then later that week, I think the next day, in fact, we, we were at Thorpe Arch for a press conference and came out, press conference, wandering back towards the car. As we did, who should roll in through the gate but Darius Vassell in a car with a personalised number plate, which made it very, very clear that it was him. And again, they didn't get that one together. The, the money didn't work out for that. You know, that could have been done at that point. And, and that one always made me chuckle, the sort of outright denial only to see him genuinely walking through the gates um, and being on, on Leeds United's um, territory. The other one, and as I say, I didn't want to go down the route here of just plucking names out of the, the air that Leeds were were sort of tenuously interested in or half interested in but didn't have the money to do. 2010 again, and people will probably vaguely be able to recall this, they were on the verge of signing John Eustace from Watford and they'd agreed a fee of, I think, around about £200,000. So he came up to Thorpe Arch and he had a a medical and Leeds obviously asked the um, LUTV guys to come up in in anticipation of, uh, of doing an interview and the usual media things that you do after you sign for a club. He disappeared out the building to have his knee checked and was never, ever seen again. And and there was a big difference of opinion over this because Leeds basically said that he'd failed his medical. They were worried about something. I, I believe it was in, in his knee. Eustace said he was fine and that actually he just had an about turn. Watford wanted to offer him a new contract, which he he duly signed. Um, I think it's always quite funny in this, the, the role that the media play, particularly when nothing happens because I mentioned, you know, the, the Sky reporter, Tim Thornton, who was down at, at Ellen Road waiting for Dan James and obviously Leeds doing the same, their in-house staff waiting for um, John Eustace who just disappeared completely. But I always remembered when, remember them signing Adam Drury, um, free transfer, um, Drury had, had been at, at Norwich and was, you know, good left back, um, solid player, somebody who Warnock wanted in through the door. The media team at Leeds felt that they needed to get an interview done with him because the deal was going to go through. But Leeds were so paranoid about the fact that it hadn't gone through that they didn't want anything to be done, or at least the hierarchy at Leeds didn't want it to be done. So in the end, the media team took Drury to the most secluded area they could find to make sure that they could do this interview, but nobody would see them. So they would have it in the can and they would be able to release it straight away. And I'm pretty sure, and I haven't looked back this year, but I'm pretty sure if you find the interview with Drury, he does have the backdrop of some nice shrubs and uh, greenery that's pretty much hiding him from view. It can all get very weird. Football's back and so is your one to watch, Phil. The player, the issue, the thing we are looking out for in Sunday's game against Cardiff. Who's it going to be? What's it going to be? I'm not going to go for Sunday's game. I think... I think Brentford Fulham is the one to watch before anything else. I'm I'm fascinated to see what happens in that. I think I'm fascinated more than anything to see how well both sides play, to see whether they look like they're on it or whether they look a bit sluggish, to see whether either side um, has the edge on on the other. Because that is a, a there are going to be some very very pivotal fixtures involving Fulham over the next few weeks. But as I said at the start of the party, that as a as a kickoff third against fourth is so crucial. And I would imagine that both teams will will be putting masses masses of importance on this and thinking that 
start well in this one and you know it's it, it's exactly the, the momentum they're after start badly and, and they might well have a problem so yeah that's the one watching hoping for a bloodbath <laughs> Perfect. Well, football is back and it is better late than never. And let's hope it does bring us plenty of joy after that bloodbath over the next month or so. And don't miss out on Phil's unrivaled coverage of Leeds United on The Athletic, plus everything else in the football world and sport from around the globe. 40% off a subscription for a limited time, less than £3 a month at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show.